Hey everybody, today I've got a special show for you and it's a bit of a departure from fantasy hockey. Scott Rintoul, formerly of Sportsnet Radio and Television and TSN Radio, joins me today to discuss a subject that's close to my heart, the early 2000s era Vancouver Canucks and specifically their top line, the West Coast Express. I am privileged and honored to have him and I hope you all enjoy the interview Let's get to biz. You're listening to Fantasy NHL Today. Hello, everybody. Welcome in. This is Fantasy NHL Today, a sports ethos presentation. I'm your host, Blake Creamer. Please follow me on Twitter, at Blake Creamer SE. We've also got a Discord. You click the link in the description, you get to talk to me. You know the drill, all right? I just started an Instagram as well, uh, Fantasy NHL Today, all one word. We're getting to biz over there. You know, I'm putting up lots of lots of pictures and lots of content. And uh, once, once the draft happens and free agency, we're going to get some more stuff on there. So you got to check that out, okay? Do me a favor. But I want to get right to it today. I've got a guest that I'm very excited about. He's a veteran broadcaster turned podcaster and the creator of Unreal West Coast Express, an amazing docuseries podcast. I want to welcome a Vancouver legend, Scott Rintoul. Scott, thank you so much for making some time today for our listeners. How are you doing today? I am well, and thank you very much for having me. Legend is high praise, but I will take it. Thank you. Kind of you. He's a legend and he's modest. Oh my God. Well, that's a double threat, Scott. Well, well done. Um, all right. Uh, well, I want to get into this because I love uh, the content of what we're talking about here today. Um, this podcast series basically just covers the time period where I was at my most active as a Canucks fan. And just, you know, to let you know, there are parts when I was listening to this series where I got goosebumps and um, you know, when that happens is when some of those, those, uh, calls, those play calls. So Jim Houston, shout out to John Shorthouse, Tom Larshide, Chris Cuthbert. I, I love that stuff. Like when I hear that in the crowd roar, that's just brings me right back there. And then some parts as well, really brought back the pain, the pain that I felt the PTSD that we as Canucks fans have to live with on a daily basis. Um, you know, and what we've endured, but to me, that's a sign of a really great piece of content that you've created just the ability to get the listener to really feel those highs and lows and kind of put you back in that spot. So I just want to say thank you so much for that. And we will get into it here. Um, on that note, actually, before we get into that, happy uh, second day of summer. So I know you're a thank big you outdoors guy. Yeah. So what, what's, you got any plans with the family? You're going to, you know, hit up some, some hikes or some, you know, what, what, what are you doing in the summer here? Well, it's the summer in BC. It doesn't get much better than that. Well, There's lots of places you can travel to, but man, I'll tell you, this part of the country, when it's summer, whether you're going to the island, whether you're going into the interior, staying on the coast, there's just so many things to do. And we'll be road tripping around the province, going camping next week. So that's kind of the first one on the summer bucket list, if you will. My kids, we let them design a summer fun list every year and we try to check as many as we can. So we're going to start with camping. That's such a good idea. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I um I was telling you off air, like we uh, we live on Vancouver Island. We actually just moved here um, just over a year ago, and there's uh, like I'm not an outdoors person. I played a lot of NHL '95. All right, on Sega Genesis, that was my that's what I did. All right, um, but being out here, there is no excuse to not get outside. It is insane, and you know I've got two young kids, so I don't want to you know give them my affliction of, you know, <laughs> staying indoors, no, you know, vitamin D on my skin. So yeah, I'm excited for this summer as well. We're just going to stay in, but beautiful down here. I'm excited. All right. Happy summer. Awesome, everybody. man. Well, I'll tell you this young kids and I've got two of them as well. They'll make you an outdoors person. If you're not one already, you have to, K kids are different outside, aren't they? Like, you know, if I keep my, my, uh, my son, especially I keep him inside, we're watching TV, you know, some dingus behavior starts starts uh, creeping up there, right? But you get him outside, he does, it's like he just forgets where he is. He's having a great time. So I love it. I love I love BC. I love being out here. And that's uh, our positive affirmation for the day. All right, let's get let's get into <laughs> business here. Um, so Scott, tell us a little bit about the series Unreal West Coast Express. Um, you know, it's not just Vancouver listeners here for Fantasy NHL today. We've got uh, you know worldwide listeners here. So yeah, tell us about the series and what prompted you to tell this story. 
Well, I'm glad that it's not just Vancouver or Canucks listeners, because I don't think this is just a Vancouver or Canucks story. I think this is not only a hockey story. I think this is a great sports story, which in my opinion is the greatest drama and reality series that we've ever had going anyway. So this was a line that became the most dominant in the NHL. You can ask a lot of people and it might not have been for a terribly long stretch, but a lot of people tell you this was the best line in the NHL. Marcus Naslin, Todd Bertuzzi, Brendan Morrison. The fact that that line ever got together is a miracle by odds. They were acquired by three different general managers, two years apart, all drafted by different organizations. And the plan when each came in was not to play with the other. It ended up working out that way. So that in itself is a good sports story. And they end up having at one point the highest scoring season to this date in Vancouver Canucks history for a single line. That record still stands. But it's all the other things that came along with it. It's the lead up to what brought each of them there. It's the fact that they had some of those high uh, high highs, highest of the highs, I suppose you could say, in terms of individual success and success as a trio. But the team never really did much in the playoffs. In fact, only won a single playoff series along the way. But the way they won, the way they lost, and the style they brought to the NHL, and obviously anybody who knows the name Todd Bertuzzi, and that's most sports fans, knows how it unofficially ended. So that's a compelling part of this story as well. And that's why I wanted to tell it, because it's not always about teams that win championships. It's about teams that inspire. It's about players who brought fans back. It's about excitement. It's about entertainment. And this trio and the team that they fronted were all of those things. Yeah, that is so true. Um, you know, when I hear you say they won one playoff series, oh my God, how did this happen? I like that. This is, yeah, you know, we'll get it, we'll get into it. But, um, you know, I, again, I love, I've heard you mention that in some interviews before, and it's just bears repeating like, yeah, three guys, what are they even doing here? Uh, um, you know, with all the turmoil that was going on in the organization, I love, you know, in the first couple episodes here, you're talking about from 94 to kind of the West Coast Express era. And that is such an interesting era as well. What a horrible time for Canucks fans. Um, you know, but I love I love the detail and I love how you chronologically laid it out because there are parts I well, I remember, maybe I compartmentalized and put it out of my mind, but they're, you know, having that sort of read back to me is was bringing up a lot of really interesting stuff. So I really enjoy that. Um, on the West Coast Express, what are some specific memories that you personally have? Because I know you were covering the Canucks at that during that era. Um, are there any memories that sort of stand out to you in a positive way? Because we know some negative ones, you know, and we'll definitely get into those. But um, yeah, is, is there anything that really stands out to you? Just, you know, things that you remember from your time? There's a lot. And we could go through a list of 10, 20, 50, if you really wanted to break them down to specific events, I think the overarching theme is that they brought an excitement back to the city, not just the fan base in Vancouver. You mentioned it. There were dark times in the late 90s for the Vancouver Canucks. And that's why I went back and told that part of the story, because I don't believe you can truly measure the impact of this line and the teams that they were the face of unless you see how bad things were. And when they started to go, specifically Naslin and Bertuzzi, because Morrison was the last to arrive. Things were bad. People didn't want to go to games. And I have firsthand experience of that. I didn't know what I wanted to do after I got my degree in university. I didn't take broadcasting to begin with. I'm a biochem grad from UBC. And so I knew I liked sports. I thought, oh, maybe I'll go into sports management or be a sports agent. And I got through a couple of contacts, an opportunity to just go do cold calling, trying to get people tickets for the Vancouver Canucks. It's just the city I was living in. So somebody got me in there and you're calling up and you're saying, Hey Blake, how you doing? I got your number because you were at the boat show and I know you didn't win that prize for the barbecue, but great news because you entered, you qualify for a special deal on a three pack of Canucks tickets and you'll nice. be able to go see three different games and it'll cost you just $85. Blake, what a deal. How can you turn that down? Blake, Let's talk about what three games you might want to go to. Like that was kind of the read that you would have to go through at the time. And Blake or whoever was on the other end would say, why would I pay money, <laughs> any money to go watch those players? They don't give a great effort. They lose. Ah, they're soft. They'd say all different things about those teams. 
which had star power, but they didn't have wins and they didn't have cohesiveness and they didn't have an emotional connection with the fan base. So the ultra, our overarching theme, pardon me, Blake, for me, is that this group started to bring people back. And it's not just because they were all kind of about the same age and had different personalities. That helped, but they were exciting. And they were exciting in a time when the NHL was in the dead puck era. The New Jersey Devils were suffocating teams. Good on them. They won Stanley Cups. I don't take anything away from them. All they did is play by the rules of engagement. But it was pretty boring hockey to watch. And a lot of teams in a copycat league said, well, if we're going to win, I guess that's how we're going to have to play. These guys were wide open. These guys were puck possession. They weren't just dump and chase into the corners. They wanted to hold on to the puck. They were allowed to be creative. They were allowed to play a transition game, which, yes, meant opportunities at the other end as well. But they were fun at a time when the league wasn't fun. So that in itself is probably the overarching memory. But, mm-hmm. yes, there's four goal games by Marcus Naslin. There's some of the exciting playoff series. There's Harold Druken scoring against the Kings to get them back oh, into the playoffs. God. Like there are a lot of different memories and I, I do chronicle many of them throughout the course of this series, but I'll tell you the truth, Blake, I'm like you, when I went through this and I was actually doing the work, there are things I either didn't know or had completely forgotten because time rolls on and you don't remember everything. You remember some of those specific memories, but you don't remember some of the details. And I've had a lot of feedback from people like yourself, listeners of the podcast who have said, I had completely forgotten about Todd Bertuzzi's 10 game suspension to open that one season right. or name another, another event they'd forgotten completely. I talked to the guy, Chris Brumwell, who was the PR of the team at the time. I talked to him tonight and he said that to me and he was working with them <laughs> yep. every single day. So it just shows you how much fans appreciate a detailed chronicling of some important times and a history in a game that they love. It's such a service that you did. I mean, maybe you didn't think of it when you were creating it, but as a fan, yeah, like the, exactly what you said. It's it's just there, archived, chronological, like all the people involved giving you their account, so you're getting new information. It's just such a good idea and such a great topic that you picked. Like I, that's just as a fan. I, I when I saw that, I was like, oh my goodness. Like it's it's just it's just a great thing. Um honestly for me personally it's it's like a time capsule. Uh this this series like a time capsule of an era that you know I'd forgotten a bit of. Um but yeah some of the one of the things I did want to mention is something I still think about to this day is Bertuzzi in the St. Louis series just hammering the defenseman taking McGinnis out of the out of the series like that was that was Todd Bertuzzi at his best to me, and I and I do want to talk about Bertuzzi a little bit because he, he's he's one of my favorite players. Like it, he and you know he always has been, but this kind of just solidifies that even more. I just remember watching him during the time, and he he was a next level power forward. Like he, if he if he wanted to, he could just take over a game, and that's what I remember for the St. Louis series. Um, also, two things that you brought up that I'm, I'm really glad you you. Uh, brought attention to is Marcus Naslin. Um, you know, when he was getting that ovation with his crutch, that's something I remember that I had kind of forgotten about. And then also when Naslin said we choked, those are two really like telling things about how um, passionate Marcus Naslin was, but also how authentic he was um, like that. That's, you know, and authenticity is something that I value really highly. And I feel like this line had that in spades. And that's one of the things that made them so compelling to watch on the ice. I don't know. That's, that's, that's where I'm going with that. Um, but what, for you, what has the public response been? So it's now been, what, like four months since it's been released. How, how is it, uh, how has it been going for you? Yeah, we just had a bonus episode come out in the last few weeks, which is great to get out there. And that's a round table present day, Todd, Brendan, Marcus, all reacting to what they heard in the podcast, things they learned, which they actually told me they didn't know and, and found out about. And so how they feel about the way the story was told. So that was the last one that came out, but yeah, toward the end of March was when we released the final episode of the actual nine part series. And the feedback's been tremendous. I honestly have been overwhelmed to a certain degree. You know, when I put a tweet out in late November of 2022, that this was coming in January of 2023, I was a little bit surprised by how many people tweeted back at me and commented (laughs) and retweeted. I was honestly, I felt a pressure that I didn't know existed. I was going to do this no matter what. And I was putting this together, 
But all of a sudden, the number of people who had a great expectation for this made me realize it better be good and it better live up to that expectation. And I'm happy to report that the feedback I've received, that's what it's been. People, while they may not feel differently about those teams or those players, or maybe they do because people change over time. And I think this series really gives you a perspective on especially things you felt polarized about at the time that might make you rethink them. People have been very complimentary, not just of the fact that it was done, but the detail in which it was done, the fact that so many people were involved and the production value on it. I got to give my, my guy, Andre Deacon, a shout out. He did a tremendous job with the final edit on this product as well. So to answer your question, I know that's a long-winded answer for it, but the response has been tremendous. It really has been. You crushed it, my man. You knocked it out of the park for sure. Um, yeah, it just hits on all levels and really plays like like a Netflix series to me. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of, that's my favorite kind of podcasting. Like, and I know I've heard you mention this before, but that long story sort of podcasting, because you can just get into it, right? Instead of like, I do a daily, which is good. There's not really any story arcs in what I'm doing here on Fantasy NHL today. It's about daily what's going on. But Boy, you can really, when you got characters like this, first off, you need that time to, to get into it and, and tell that story fully. And I'm so glad that you sort of embraced that, you know what I mean? Because it could have been just like, you know, a three or four part episode or four part series and you're getting into West Coast Express, finished with the Steve Moore incident. And there you go. But yeah, we got a, we got a whole thing. And I love that round table. That's, a, that's an excellent piece there too. Um, Thank you. So yeah, really good work there. All right. Um, I do want to talk about Todd Bertuzzi. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, one of my favorite players. I was just uh, um, chirping with my buddies here. Um, we do, you know, my fantasy hockey friends. We, um, I'm putting, we're, we're putting together our top five lists for, you know, top five players. Bertuzzi's on my list. I got Burray. I got McGillney too. I like him. Hall of Fame doesn't, but uh, that's fine. He should uh, be in. What is going on? 76 goals. What are we, what are we doing here? I don't know. Uh, let's that's that's neither here nor there but anyways Bertuzzi is one of my favorite players uh, I remember um, my girlfriend at the time in that era she said Bertuzzi was on her list as well all right and I think you know what list we're talking about so and for me I was like I can't even argue with it all right he's he's that attractive um, you know but he should keep his teeth in. I think that's something that, that he needs to make sure Morrison too, really. But, uh, you know, they've got some good dentists. I don't know where I'm going with this, but now I know um, why you grew the beard. Now I knew, know why you, you grew know, the beard to emulate yeah, Bert. Yeah, exactly. Without this beard, I have no chin definition and that's, that's not good <laughs> for anybody. So, um, but yeah, talk to me about Todd Bertuzzi. What was it that separated him from other power forwards of the era? Just in your opinion. You don't get a frame that big that is able to play that physically that has those mitts and that vision. And Bertuzzi had all of that. And that's what separated him when he was at his best. And it took a long time for that to develop. And you'll hear that time and time again with power forwards in the NHL. But a lot of it never comes to fruition. And Todd Bertuzzi, he could do those things you talked about earlier in the St. Louis series. He could run through defensemen and separate a shoulder. Not that he was trying to injure somebody, but intimidation and physical presence is a part of a physical game like hockey. And Todd Bertuzzi had that. There were times when he decided to go to the net that there was nothing anyone could do about it. There were very few players in the league that could contain him. I think of a guy maybe like a Chris Pronger might have been able to hold him to the outside or a Scott Stevens at his best. But there weren't guys built like that that could handle Todd Bertuzzi's physicality. And then when you see the creativity that he brought with the skill set, that those hands right. that I talked about, it was just so rare. You just don't find it. I was asked on a recent podcast, like, who do you compare him to in today's game? There isn't one player that he's exactly like. And the game is played entirely differently now. Thanks in part, by the way, according to Wayne Gretzky, to the West Coast Express. That's part of the reason the game is played right now because of that line. You'll hear that in the podcast. But there's no one quite like him. Like, he's got... Matthew Kachuk level skill. Some maybe would say Leon Dreisaitl level skill. I think he plays differently than Dreisaitl, but he's got the physicality of a Tom Wilson, but he's got Matthew Kachuk level skill and that edge that both guys bring to the table that makes them polarizing figures. Like he had that all wrapped into a single package. Yeah. I think that was one of the most frustrating things about Bertuzzi as well is that on the nights where he wasn't noticeable, it was because he was playing on the outside. He wasn't like, I remember very specifically, like 
what are you doing? Like, get in there and just hammer that man, you know, like it, because he could. And I, yeah, I truly remember that. And, you know, obviously as his career went on and things happened, like he kind of became that perimeter player more than what he was during that West coast express era. But during that era, I mean, I, I don't know that there's anyone better uh, at that. You know, it was it was just incredible to watch. Um, and one of the things too, actually, I think it was Ray Ferraro in in one of the episodes mentioned that um, Bertuzzi he kind of needed conflict to succeed. Like he needed a bit of that battle. You know what I mean? And and that's what's so interesting about your series as well is talking about how the game changed, the lockout, and then the clutching and grabbing went away. Right. So Bertuzzi thrived when it was a that clutching and grabbing style. But then when that went away, maybe he lost a little bit of that conflict. Is that sort of the way you saw it as well? I think that's a part of it. I think Todd admits during the course of the series, and again, this isn't a spoiler alert. I think this is more just a little teaser to throw out there if, if some of your listeners haven't heard the series yet. But one of the things Todd says is that after the incident, when he was given another opportunity to play the game that he loved, he knew he had to change his game. Because he was going to be under a different type of microscope than he'd ever been under before. And that's because of all the publicity that came because of the Steve Moore incident and how far and wide that went. So he felt he couldn't play the game the same way. And so he had to change. And what would he have been had the incident not occurred? I have no idea. We can only speculate. But I know how good he was those two years. Those two years where he burst out of the gate and was, in Mark Crawford's opinion, the year that Jerome McGinley won the heart, he felt Bertuzzi was the best player in the league, but because of the 10 game suspension, he didn't play as much. He didn't accrue as many points as Jerome McGinley and cap tip to him, because those are the two preeminent power forwards at that particular time. But Bertuzzi had to change his game. He had to, because as he mentions in the podcast, it's not just a whack on the back of the legs when Todd Bertuzzi is doing it. Now it's, Oh, What did he mean by that? Is that a vicious swing of the stick as opposed to something you might just see after a regular face-off? Understandably, he was graded differently, and understandably, he changed his game. Yep, that's so true. I mean, you can't help but have that kind of in the back of your mind as you're moving forward, and it makes total sense him kind of, you know, moving to different teams the way that he did. Um, I'm also really glad that Brendan Morrison got his flowers in your series as well, just as underrated. And, and he, you know, he's that, that sh- in the shadow of those two really dynamic players. But this line doesn't happen to me if, if Morrison's not there, right? He's a facilitator, but he also is defensively responsible. And I think it was Bertuzzi saying he plays that 200-foot game. He's back and forth. He'll he'll go pick it up and he'll just distribute. And these guys could just go to town and, and be creative. So, yeah, I mean, um, talk to us a little bit about Brendan Morrison and what he brought to his line that others couldn't. Well, you described a part of it. It was that fa- the fact that he was willing to do the grunt work defensively, but he was also fast enough to get back up into the play. And that is the difference between the line when it had Andrew Castle centering it, which was very effective, but it wasn't to the elite level it got to with Morrison because what he unlocked was their transition game. Andrew Castles had as good or better vision than Brendan Morrison. You can debate that all day. And Naslin and Bertuzzi are very complimentary, as have many of his teammates been for Andrew Castles over the course of his career, but he didn't have the foot speed. So they couldn't play the same type of transition game. And Andrew Castles couldn't get back as effectively into his own end. That freed Nasland and Bertuzzi up to save a little bit of energy, to be up ice a little more because he was back helping out. And then he could get that puck up to them. And he wasn't selfish. That's the other part of it. Some players get a chance to play on a line with a couple of special wingers like, Naslin and Bertuzzi. And once they get there and they start producing points, maybe they eat up the headlines a little bit, but that was never Morrison. He was always very cognizant of what his role was on the line. And he wasn't going to try to say, well, Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm the guy facilitating all that. It's just not his personality. And as they mentioned in the course of the series, I think the fact that he could take their brutal honesty at times and their criticisms of, Hey, get me the puck. Like, why didn't you give me the puck? You had it and you didn't get it to me. And he could just soak that in. And very rarely did he snap back. The fact that he could absorb that tension, which needed to happen, that's another part of what made them so successful. Yeah, I think a a key part is just balancing out those two, 
you know, interesting, dynamic players and very big personalities as well. Um, so well, I love that. Henrik Sedin. Sorry to jump in here, Blake, but you oh, hear no, Henrik yeah. Sedin during the course of this story talk about what it means to be a number one center in the NHL. Like when you first burst onto the scene and you're doing that and nobody had paid attention to you much before, okay, you don't get all the top defensive matchups. But once you establish that as Morrison did and that line did, now everybody's coming for you. And as Henrik Sedin said, you might think every single player in the NHL wants to be the guy and, and leaned on every single night. Not everybody does because it's a hell of a lot of pressure. And Morrison, just like the other two, could handle it and thrived on it. Yeah. And throw on top of that, he's in a Canadian market. You know, it, it's just, it's a, <laughs> he's a, his, his energy and his mentality really kind of, like you said, balance that out. And I, I love Brandon Morrison. I've always been a big fan. He scored so many big goals for this team as well. Oh my God. Love that man. Um, Yes. Okay. So another piece that I wanted to uh, talk to you about that is something I enjoyed, like I said earlier, is that you started from 94 because uh, that is the year that I really got into the Canucks. I remember I was in high school. I was watching, you know, with a friend of mine, you know, when the Canucks would win, we'd go into his car. He was 16 at the time. So we'd take his mom's car and we go bang pots and pans and stuff like that, you know, just fun stuff. So that's, that's a really big year for me. Um, but I also remember the excitement uh, that of the Messier signing, the McGillney signing. And then, and then I remember how painful that was afterwards. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up to you and just see if you had the same experience is just during my time as a Canucks fan, something that's been really tough are the expectations that always tend to follow this team. And I don't know if that's just a Canadian market or just this, this, the way this team has been. But when I listened to unreal West coast express, I, I reminded of those expectations surrounding almost every year um, that you covered, right? Like they go to those finals in 94. Now there's an expectation like they were one game away. So, okay, they should be able to do that again. Nope, that didn't happen. The signing of Messier and McGillney, right? There's now there's expectations. Well, okay, we got Burry, McGillney, Messier. What, what's the problem here? We got to go. No. Um, and then West Coast Express, once they're created, and they're succeeding, now there's an expectation that they're all going to dominate every time they're out on the ice. No. Um, you know, it, it's just the, the playoff expectations too, obviously. I, I always just felt like there was one little thing at the end of each season where you could, you could pinpoint and be like, okay, well, it was that, right? Naslin broke his leg. Okay. Cloutier led in that goal from Lidstrom. Okay. That's fine. Um, you know, they, the, whatever they, the goaltending in the Minnesota series or they just, they just botched it. I don't know. There was always this one thing where you, the next season you could be like, next season's the one, right? And the, the new Canucks still do this. Oh my God. With like, you know, they got Bruce Boudreau at the, at the end of, you know, two years ago and they, they go on a tear, right? They, they almost make the playoffs and then they stink coming in. <laughs> Same thing with talk it. They get talk it in. They're playing great. So what, oh, you know, it's just, they just keep doing it to us. Is that, is that your experience, Scott, with this team? It's a frustrating team. Well, it's an interesting team to cover. I'll tell you, they're rarely yeah. boring. They're very rarely boring, but there have been boring years. And I've covered a number of those as well. I think part of what you described, Blake, is just due to the fact that the team has never won a Stanley Cup. And the fan base and the city wants it so badly. And they've come really close twice. And obviously, they're there one other time. But they were playing a powerhouse New York Islanders squad and weren't expected to do much. And they, they didn't do much in that series. But the other two times, they went to Game 7. And they were so close. And in one of those series they had shown over the course of 10 months that they were the best team in the league. And just like you said, one thing or another led to their downfall and it just wasn't enough to get them over the hump. There've been a lot of highs for this franchise, but there hasn't been the ultimate high. And without that, that expectation is always going to linger, but also the other thing that's going to linger and you probably know this. And, and one of the things that I think people don't know, I didn't grow up a Canucks fan. Not at all. I I grew up in BC after I moved from Alberta. So I actually cheered for the Calgary Flames when I was growing up. But I covered this team once I got into this sport professionally. And when I was in Vancouver, I came down here for university. And growing up in Kamloops, for the most part, you know what's going on with the team. And you do follow the team, whether or not you consider yourself a dyed-in-the-wool fan. The other part of it is that this team always, always, always has something to cling to. Like there's always a thing, whether it's a great player like a Pavel Bure or getting close to the Stanley Cup, there's that thing to latch onto and give you reason for hope. 
And the other, the other part of that is since the West Coast Express, we haven't seen this team really try to rebuild. So part of that is the team itself has baked expectation into the fan base. It's not just the fan base that has created it. It's, oh, we're not tearing this thing down. We're not going to send a letter out like the New York Rangers did a few years ago. That's not what we're doing here. So the fans never take a step back because the organizations never really asked them to take, take a step back, has it? No. Yeah, not at all. This is such a good point. I'm glad you're bringing it up, Scott. It's that retool versus rebuild that I feel like kind of started with that, you know, the Messier era, right? And then led into the West Coast Express. They never really just, let's tear it down. Let's, let's you know, do this properly, right? There, there was all these, like you said, these little bits of hope that keep coming. And uh, uh, another thing I like that you said is um, they really needed to win that Stanley Cup. In 2011, <laughs> if they would have won that, that we, they would have bought so much patience from this fan base. I mean, we, we would have been fine. It'd be like, ah, stake it up for 10 years, no problem going on 53 years what the oh my god like and i don't see it coming anytime soon how how is it gonna happen i'm just trying to think you know and i love this team and i still like i love the players on this team but i'm just i just watched the stanley cup finals i'm like no i I don't see how they're gonna you know we're needing a lot of changes and a lot of things to go right to even compete with those teams Yeah, hockey's a funny sport, and I'm not sitting here trying to sell anybody on, hey, the Vancouver Canucks 2024 Stanley Cup champions. That's not what I'm doing here. Let's go. Hockey's a funny sport. Sometimes teams get on a roll when you don't see it coming. I think that 94 team in Vancouver is a pretty good example. Trevor Linden talks about this in the podcast, that they were really good in the early 90s, and they bowed out to the Gretzky-led Kings, and they bowed out to St. Louis a cup a year before that. And there were a couple of places where it looked like they'd kind of missed their window. And then all of a sudden things came together in 94. Now, if you look back now, you go, okay, you can see the buildup to what that is, but a lot of times you don't see that coming. And hockey is notorious for that. The St. Louis blues Stanley cup. It's an outlier, but those things happen because it's a weird game that has a lot of randomness and can be dictated by a goaltender. So I'm not trying to suggest the Vancouver Canucks going on a cup run next year, but it's funny how quickly things can happen in a couple of years or two or three years. The Florida Panthers are a pretty good example. Perfect example. Yeah. Because just like you said, I mean, they had, they had a historic year last year and then fizzled out. And so now we're all surprised. They, you know, eighth seed goes as, far as they did but they're one year removed from a, a historic offensive season you know the, most of those players are still there and then they they introduce matt kachuk i mean this guy's a beauty so um you know just make the playoffs i don't know maybe that's what the canucks owners are saying just make the playoffs we, we got a chance it's like no we don't we need some defense we need some centers come on just help us out but uh yeah, it's gonna be a few years but you never know well i think that's the hard part about hockey is that you can trick yourself and think that you're closer than you are because you see a team like the Florida Panthers, but your point is a really good one that not every team is the president's trophy winner the year before mm-hmm. and then comes in as an eight seed. Yep. Make, make, show everybody over the course of eight months that you're a really good team. And then maybe it's not as much of a surprise if you come in as a lower seed and, and make a bit of a run, but you got to establish something first. Yep. No, that's so true. Um, all right. I, w- I do want to get back to talking about this series here. Um, one thing that I, I loved uh, is the coaches speaking about the coaches. And this is something that I talk about a little bit on my pod. Like I, I kind of have a hate on right now for kind of dinosaur coaches that, you know, like Daryl Sutter, for instance, like him getting let go. I wasn't too upset about that. You know, like I feel like it, it was just interesting to me to hear because we've got three like pretty good maybe dinosaur coaches like Crawford sounds like he's, he's, he's had to change, right. To, to move into his new position, but we've got Mike Keenan, we've got Mark Crawford and Elaine Vigneault. What are your thoughts on, on sort of their styles? Um, you know, maybe, and maybe start with Mike Keenan's sort of the motivational tactics that he used. Um, and do you think there are still coaches like that in the NHL? Are there coaches like that in the NHL? I would say probably not in the NHL. Some would argue maybe there's one in Columbus with Mike Babcock, but I guess we'll see. I'm mm-hmm. not sure Mike Babcock was ever to the level of a Mike Keenan, but Mike Keenan also comes from an era where 
the general public accepted that to a certain degree. Ah, it's just how it is. Hard coach. You got to be able to take the tough love. If you can't have a guy yelling at you, like, are you really cut out to be in the National Hockey League? That's That was the mentality. It's an old way of thinking. It's dinosaur to your point. I agree with you wholeheartedly. There's no place for some of those tactics. But they also worked for Mike Keaton to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. They worked in Philadelphia. They worked in Chicago. They worked, obviously, with the New York Rangers as well. So his track record was reinforced time and time again that this is the way to go about it. Now, does Mike Keenan today go about it the same way? Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know the man, so I can't speak for him. Mark Crawford, as you mentioned, he's had the change. Now, he had an incident in Switzerland this year where he blurted something out that he should not have blurted out and and used a homophobic slur that he shouldn't be using. And so sometimes there are things that creep back in. We're, we're all human. I'm not trying to give him a pass on that. But as much as he's changed and talked about that, it's hard. It's hard. Elaine Vigneault is an interesting one because mm-hmm. he's a firm coach. Is Elaine Vigneault abusive? I'm not sure that he's ever been referred to that way. Like, is he verbally abusive? I don't, I have no idea. I've never been coached by him, but I've never heard somebody lay that complaint at him but he's a hard coach and he's grading on some players. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's a lot of room still for firm, but there's not any room for abusive. Like, I think we're all past that. Yeah. I don't think as a society, we want that anymore. And I think people confuse that with being soft. And that right. those are two completely different things. Bruce Cassidy is firm. Like there were players in Boston that didn't like Bruce Cassidy. But as my buddy Ray Ferraro always likes to say, when you go into an NHL dressing room, there's 25 guys, five of them are going to love you. Five of them are going to hate you. You need the other 15 to respect you and be on the same page at least. And, and be closer to the guys that love you than the guys that hate you. Because somebody's always going to be upset about ice time. Somebody's always going to be upset about role. They're always going to think they deserve a little more. And look, I got a contract coming up. There's a business component to this as well. But the good coaches are able to have open dialogue, open communication, so that even if somebody's not in a great situation for themselves personally, they understand the reasons why. And I think this generation demands it. They want to know why. I grew up at a time, Mm -hmm. you're a little younger than me, but we grew up at a time when if a coach said do something, you just did it. Right. You just did it. And I wish that we had some of the gumption that some of these players have today where they said, well, hold on a second. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Explain why we're doing that. And if the coach has a good reason, players do it. But if it's just like the old school, well, because I said so, ah, maybe that's not a great reason. Maybe you need to rethink that a little bit. Yeah, that's so true. It's it's kind of like parenting, isn't it? It's like 100%. Yeah, you, you got to have boundaries. You have to be firm, right? But yeah, like that that explaining why or that empathy, right? That's something that I like to see, you know, as, as much as we, we can as or I can as a fan uh, of looking at a coach and their team, you know, I like to see that. And I thought I saw that a little bit in Florida there um, when, you know, when they reached the the cup, just kind of what their dressing room was like, what the players were saying and the way Paul Maurice was sort of um, acting as well. I just, I, in my own experience, like I've been on teams, like one time I was a, a player coach for like a, a ball hockey team. I played like a pretty decent level ball hockey and I ran my own team and I, I ran my own team because I wanted to get away from negative sort of, you know, aspects of people yelling chirping at you whatever on your own team right so i moved to a team and i i just picked guys that i know are positive right and we ended up winning our league that year and i feel like through positivity you can experience more you know you can experience a higher high like and i wonder about those teams those mike keenan coach teams that did win or john tortorella or those type of guys um did they win despite the coach you know what I mean? Like, did they, that was the, was the room strong? Like, did they, I mean, obviously Mike Babcock is a good coach. There's no question there. Like he's maybe one of the best, like with the X's and O's, but you know, I don't know. It all, I think it's all the, the, like Todd Bertuzzi talks about it in your series a lot about confidence. Right. And if you're afraid to make a mistake, 
you know, that, that's, that can only last so long, you know, I, I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent. This is, this is something that I, I like to talk about, but. Um, no, I understand two- what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And I think it was Paul Maurice during the cup final, one of the interviews he gave, they talked if he had changed anything with the way, actually, I think it was on 32 thoughts of podcast. And he, with the way that he provided feedback to players from Winnipeg to Florida and I'll try to make this as quick as possible. Basically, he said, like someone said to him, well, are you negative all the time? Are you too positive? Like, what are you? How do you give players their feedback? So he had people run down the clips that he had used, and they literally took the data on it, and they found that where he had been positive to begin, that doesn't mean you can't criticize, but where they had shown players, hey, here's something you're doing right. You're doing this well. You're doing this well. You're doing this well. Now, here's an aspect to your game that we need to improve. But if they did it in that manner, they got more out of the player going forward, to your point. It doesn't mean that you can't point out challenges that players have in their game or things that need to be done better. But it's all in how you deliver the message. And are you always telling players, here's what you're doing wrong? Are you always telling your kids, here's what you're doing wrong? Or are you saying, here are a lot of things you're doing right. Can we just start to make this look like a lot of those? Yeah, I love it. Why why don't they just listen to us, Scott? We know what the <laughs> hell we're talking about. All right. Come on. This is this is good stuff right here. All right. Let's get back to biz. All right, because I want to talk more on the West Coast Express. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. I really appreciate this. Um, so we can't talk about the West Coast Express without discussing the Steve Moore incident. Um, you know, so obviously you were you were at that game, right? Um, covering the team. First off, what was sort of your experience there in the rink when that was going on? What did that feel like? Such a bizarre evening for so many different reasons. And I do chronicle it in that episode, which is episode seven of the series. Like those two teams were so closely matched. Everybody knew they were not only the top two teams in the division, but in some people's opinion, the top two teams in the Western conference, that the road to the cup was going to go through one of those two teams. And this was the last meeting of the season between the two. Steve Moore had hit Marcus Nasland a couple of games previous This was the first one back in Vancouver. But as I pointed out in telling that, these two teams, no team had ever held more than a two-goal lead in their previous meetings that season. Like, the games were all close. Some of them were low-scoring. Some of them were high-scoring back and forth. But they were always closely competitive in all of those games. This game just got out of hand early. It was one of those nights. And all of a sudden, it was 5 nothing. And then the Canucks kind of got it to 5-2 somehow, some way, and they've got this two-man advantage. And because of the firepower of that team and because of the way those two teams had jostled during the course of the season, people in that arena, people in the press box, as you're putting your notes together, thinking, might this be a comeback? Like, might this actually be a heck of a game and we have a different storyline rather than this blowout? But then the goals continued, and then they were down 7-2. And then there was this weird feeling in the arena that something was going to happen. And obviously something did. And I have never been to an event. I've been to a lot of them in my career, but I've never been to an event where I have heard a roar that loud. And Ian McIntyre details this well, and this is exactly how I would have talked about it. That crowd went crazy when Bertuzzi struck more. Right. Because their team was getting smoked. They felt like their captain hadn't been properly dealt with by the league for the Steve Moore hit on Nasland. They they felt there wasn't a measure of respect there. They felt Steve Moore hadn't paid his penance for what he did to Marcus Nasland. So when Bertuzzi struck him, the crowd went crazy. It was loud in there. Mm-hmm. And it was loud for a while because so many players got into that pileup. It took a while to sort that whole thing out. But when they finally pulled players off and there was blood on the ice, and Steve Moore wasn't moving, I don't think I've ever heard an arena go that silent. Like, it's not that silent during the lead-up to the national anthem, or when they ask for a moment of silence, there's always somebody talking. That place was eerily silent, and there was this morbid feeling that washed over everybody at the time, like, oh, this went bad. This went not a way anybody was expecting. So that was the experience in the arena that night. It really puts things into perspective, doesn't it? Like we, 
you know, I remember I, I was watching the game at a friend's house. I was in a band when I was in my early 20s and, and we were getting ready to do a practice, but we knew it was an important game, right? I think they were one point away from each other. It was like a battle for first. Um, and yeah, we were, we, you know, once the score got run up, we're like, all right, like we had, we were, we were ferocious. There's blood in the water. We're like, let's go. Right. And something like that happens and it puts things in perspective. And, um, yeah, like this is a game. This is people's lives. This like Steve Moore's life was life was changed forever. Todd Bertuzzi's life, you know, even Naslin Morrison, the, like many, at least fans, like, you know, that there was, there was many changes that happened from, from this incident. And um, that's, that's kind of a scary thing. Sometimes that mob mentality, that, that, that expectation again, that we have of, of athletes, of our teams to, to do something, you know what I mean? And that pressure. Um, and I'm, I, this kind of leads me into a question that I'd love to ask just about this market in general, um, playing in this market in Vancouver here. Um, do you feel like that mentality is still, still exists or could rear its ugly head? Like, it seems like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to get at here, but just the, just the mentality in Vancouver and Canadian cities, big markets. What do you think it's like playing in those markets? Yeah, I don't think it's exclusive to Vancouver. I don't think it's exclusive to Canada. I've been in Boston for the Stanley cup final in 2011. Yeah. And I've never felt an energy quite like that one. Right. Like that was a very different vibe in that arena. And after Aaron Rome hit Nathan Horton, that crowd had what Ian McIntyre referred to in this series. He had, they had bloodlust. Like they yeah. wanted totally. something for that hit. Like they wanted their revenge for that hit. So I don't think it's exclusive to Vancouver. I don't think it's exclusive to hockey, quite frankly. I think people get caught up in the emotion of the moment yep. and they don't necessarily think about the consequences at the time. If you remember a couple of years ago when the Battle of Alberta fired back up and Matthew Kachuk was at the center of it. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Matthew oh, Kachuk's yeah. at the center of that. And do you remember how much of a public enemy number one he was going back into Edmonton and who's going to do something. Is Zach Cassian going to step up? Is Matthew Kachuk going to answer the bell? Like that happens every mm -hmm. once in a while in sports. And it's not just exclusive to hockey. It's certainly not exclusive to Vancouver. I do think if you want to call it mob mentality, if you just want to call it, call it the passion and emotion of a moment where you're not thinking about what happens next, but you're just caught up in it that exists in a lot of different places. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes sport so great. And then potentially an incidents like this, one of them that can really, you know, go the other way with it. You know, that was, that was some brutal stuff for sure. Um, so speaking of actually the, the Canucks right now, what are your thoughts on the current Canucks and where, where do you think they are in their process of becoming a winning team uh, with playoff success? Well, they need to establish some, they need to get back to the playoffs to start yeah. with. <laughs> they've got some what you would consider cornerstone pieces, but are they going to augment them the right way? Elias Pedersen is a star. Quinn Hughes is a star. Thatcher Demko has shown he can be a star. Okay, what else do you have? They've right. got other players. They've got other players who can fill the net. They've got other players who can be effective. But what is your DNA going to be under Rick Tockett? Like how much of that is just how you play under a new coach, how you play in the late stages of a season when people have already written you off and how much of that is tangible and real. Now that they've bought out Oliver Ekman Larson, what are they going to do with that cap space? Who else is on his way out of town and what's coming in? It's hard to know what to make of the Vancouver Canucks right now. I think people can see that they've got pieces to build around, but are they all the winning pieces? Probably not. So who stays, who goes, and what happens now that there has been a change in the leadership of this team? I didn't mention JT Miller yet. I think he's a big part of what's mm -hmm. going on in Vancouver right now, and some people don't want him to be. That's a really good player, and that contract very well may not age well. But JT Miller is a very good player, and the market is so bipolar with him. In yep. particular, three years ago during the, the COVID shortened season and JT Miller's banging his stick on the ice and not back checking times, people wanted to run him out of town. The next year he's 99 points and talk shows are asking if he should be the captain. And then they sign him to the contract and 
that's way too much. And then JT Miller shows what he was in the second half of the season. Like this market goes like the tide with JT Miller. He's one of those players. He's a really good hockey player. Is he worth the contract? That's for everybody to decide in terms of the length. I think he's fine with the AAV, certainly at the start of it. But yeah, it's probably too long. And with where the majority of their core is, it's probably not best for the long-term benefit of the Vancouver Canucks. Does that mean he's a bad hockey player? Absolutely not. So they've got some pieces. What do they do around those pieces? Like Vegas is a pretty good example, isn't it? Like Vegas has players like Jack Eichel who could be stars and he had a great playoff, but Jack Eichel wasn't anywhere near the scoring lead or, or ripping up the, you know, scoring charts this year, the way that other players in the league were, but man, was that team deep, man, was that team deep. Yeah, that's that's just so key. When when you talk about JT Miller, he's got a little bit of Bertuzzi in him, doesn't he? He he kind of reminds me of that. I mean, he's not as dominant, but uh, yeah, it's he he reminds me a little bit. Just that surly kind of you know. I, I remember that about Bertuzzi so much, and I kind of liked it at the time. Just how he would, uh, um, you know, he kind of be real short with the media, and it was kind of interesting because we had you know Brian Burke at the time, who's you know pretty much a carbon copy, you know, in, in interviews. Um, I love the stuff you have on Brian Burke. I'm a big fan of that man and just how, uh, just how much character he has and, and the stories that he tells. I've always enjoyed Brian Burke. And so that's one thing about the series it, that you created. I just love listening to Brian Burke's stories, the stuff he's telling. And you know, it's true. Like it, and, and it's so weird to know that that's true because they, they sound surreal to me, some of these stories. So you got to check out this series to hear that stuff there. Um, we're coming up on time here, Scott. Again, I really appreciate that. I've got uh, one, maybe two more questions and then I'll let you go. But uh, last one I want to ask here. Um, so even though the Canucks weren't able to reach the ultimate goal of the Stanley Cup, right? Is this the best line the Canucks have ever had, in your opinion? Ooh, it's tough to say that it's a better line long-term than the Sedins and Burroughs line because that line stayed together longer. Two of those players won scoring titles, something that the West Coast Express was never able to accomplish. They were different lines. The Burroughs and Sedin line certainly didn't have the type of physicality that Bertuzzi provided that line. And the West Coast Express was a better line off the rush overall. But it's tough to say that it was a better line overall for Canucks history than the Sedins and Alex Burroughs. Different styles. That's a very Completely. diplomatic answer, Scott. I really appreciate well, that. That's, no, that's I think I think if you have to rank them, I will give the Sedins and Burroughs the best line in the history of the Vancouver Canucks to this point. Okay? I love it. I love if it. If it's one season, as I mentioned before, no trios had a better season together in Vancouver than the West Coast Express. And the Sedins didn't do it with the style that the West Coast Express did it. Like I, I watched all those Sedin years as well, and they did it quietly. They they did it very quietly with no fanfare. But um, that kind of brings me to my last point just about this series. And what I really took out of it was um, the legacy that the West Coast Express left behind, which is they entertained the fans, right? And they helped change the game, right? When it was the clutch and grab, West Coast Express were one of those first lines, the first true line that really kind of brought uh, an exciting style and were able to, to kind of hammer teams that way. So that's something I, I just really appreciated so much about the show. Um, yeah, just the the entertainment factor. And I love that Brian Burke, um, you know, he was looking to do that. I think at one point he was talking, or it was Dave Nonis saying, um, you know, Lou Lamarillo, well, he would play for two fans. He doesn't care as long as they win the Stanley Cup, where Brian Burke and Dave Nonis were like, we got to get the fans back in here. Because, yeah, to your point, like that the arena was empty. You couldn't give tickets away. That is so strange compared to, to what it is now, isn't it? 100%. It's 100%. And they set that tone. Like the sellout streak started in Vancouver with that group. And it's because they were so entertaining. You didn't necessarily know they were going to win although they won a lot more than they lost in the regular season overall, but you knew you were going to see goals. You knew it was going to be an exciting game. And that is what sports is supposed to be about. I know it's about winning, but the NHL today is a really good example of that. The regular season is the entertainment component. The first round is a dovetail off of that. But as the playoffs wear on, the game isn't as entertaining. It does get a little more defensive 
People don't want to make a mistake. It's not the same wide open hockey. It is a much more physical brand at that point. It's why it's such a hard tournament to win because you need a certain level of entertainment slash scoring to get you to the playoffs. And if you don't have that, the way the regular season is and the way that man advantages work now and special teams are, you can't get to the playoffs if you're only built for the playoffs. But then after the first round, you better be able to flip a switch. Like you better be able to play a hard grading fight for every inch of the ice type of game, or you're not going to get the ultimate prize. It's, it's much different now. Like the game during the West coast express era, even though they played an off brand style of the NHL at the time, the regular season looked more like the playoffs. Like they were much more simpatico, if you will, than what it is now. It's just yep, a different, no. it's a different style of game. Uh, it's so true. It's the hardest trophy to win. And that's, that's not even an exaggeration. Like what a, what an absolute grind. I watched, you know, almost all of the playoffs this last round here. And, uh, yeah, these teams are insane. These players are insane. Matt Kachuk's playing with a broken sternum. I mean, what the hell? It's, that's crazy stuff. So, um, but anyways, Scott, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. Uh, and just for creating something that really hits the mark. I, I think you, you nailed it. Um, during, I, I listened repeated, you know, repeated listens here. And I had things in, in my mind that I wanted to hear more about. And just as I had that thought, you would, you would talk about it, right. Which, which I, I just thought that was really good. So that me that says to me that we have kind of the same experience of the way we saw it and that's how it happened. And, and I just love that. It, it really validated kind of the feelings I had for the Canucks. Um, and it made me feel connected to other Canucks fans in those moments. So really thank you so much for that. And also you can just tell that this is really a passion project for you. And I love the authenticity that you were able to extract from those guys, from all the guests that you had. So thank you so much. It's a great piece of work. You're welcome. And I'm really glad you enjoyed it. As I said, my first foray into long form storytelling, and it's something I really enjoyed. Hopefully something I can do a lot more of down the road. Absolutely. What what can we expect from Unreal moving forward? It's a good question. I would like to follow up season one. Whether or not that will be in hockey is yet to be determined. I thought it was going to be a different sport. I was kind of always set on taking a different direction and just bringing a different audience into this type of long form storytelling in sports. But there have been a couple of conversations recently where I'm at least reconsidering that right now. But I do promise this, once I have the project determined, I won't keep it a secret. I'll get it out there. Come on. Don't, don't leave us in suspense, buddy. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm excited for, for whatever you do next. I'm going to be going to be singing your praises, my man. Um, before we say goodbye, uh, please just let our listeners know where we can find this series and also anything else you're working on. Yeah, obviously, you've got a podcast, so people are very familiar with podcasts right now so you can get this where you get your podcast you can get it at apple you can get it at spotify google amazon we put this series on youtube despite the fact that other than that bonus episode it is an audio series but if you prefer to get your podcast through youtube it's there as well you can also check out the entire series at our website unrealsports.com that's unreal with two e's sports.com what an absolute legend. Oh, my God. Scott Rintoul, thank you so much. Um, actually, before I let you go, too, I'm an Alberta kid myself. I was born there, moved here when I was nine. Who's your favorite old-time Calgary Flames player? Come on, give me give me someone good. Oh, man, I liked Joe Mullen a lot back in the oh, day. Yeah. I was a real – I loved Mullen. I mean, that team that won, how do you not like Lanny McDonald if you – Oh, you got to. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't the best player at the time, but – and I know this was a guy despised in Vancouver, but that young and upcoming Theo Fleury as oh, a yeah. hockey player at the time, the spark plug that he was, they had a lot of great players back in the day. But Joe Mullen was probably the guy I liked the most at that time. Absolute beauty. What about Hoke and Lube? You remember Hoke yeah, and Lube? Yeah, and Lube. Hawk and Lube. Yeah. All right. That's probably, yeah. It, and every time we got a goal, they would add another O around the, the saddle dome there. Do you remember that? There, there you go. Of course. And, and then, that's, of course, where Al McInnes established the big boomer from the point as well. He had the massive slap shot. Yeah. Love it. And then shout out to Mike Vernon, Hockey Hall of Fame. Love that. Love that goalie. So there you go. We're, we're Alberta boys. And, uh, you know, we're, we're moving on to a, a losing team, but that, that's fine. Back uh, in the fun. day. Back in the yeah. day. Yep back in the day thank you so much scott i really appreciate it and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime thanks blake appreciate the opportunity thanks for having me on my man
once again, thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Scott Rintoul. And definitely get your biscuits over and check out Unreal West Coast Express. It's a great series. It's not just for people that are fans of the Canucks. It's for fans of sport. And you get a lot of behind-the-scenes look and and um, perspectives from people uh, throughout this series. And it just it's a great listen. It's really well done, really well produced. You're going to like the way you feel. I guarantee it. Get your biscuits over there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Celebrate your day. Bye for now. A rational explanation is hardly necessary. necessary, necessary.